Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Grand Round series. Uh, today is a very special one, uh, hosted by uh, our own Adam Silverman, uh, who uh, is, is one of the, our experts in global health. And in fact, he leads our global health effort. And uh, Adam is someone who uh, uh, constantly is concerned for the care of children in other parts of the world that are uh, less well served, uh, specifically on this hemisphere in, in, in Haiti. Uh, his work there in conjunction with his colleagues uh, in, in Haiti and with many other faculty members has been nothing less than transformational. Um, I admire his uh, determination, his tenacity. Uh, he's been through, I believe, hurricanes, earthquakes, uh, civil discourse, uh, all kinds of things, but he persists in making sure that uh, the kids in Haiti that require healthcare services uh, have the best care and, and teaching. So I, uh, I admire Adam for for many things, but in particular for his dedication to children and, and uh, in the developing world uh, and in this hemisphere specifically. So, so Adam, thank you for what you do. Um, it is really an honor to have you as a member of our faculty. Uh, you keep us honest. Uh, I always welcome your emails to make sure that you bring, uh, despite the COVID-19 issues, that you bring some other relevant topics that are affecting so many kids throughout the world. And that's something that we always need to keep in mind. And I think today's presentation will be aligned with that. Uh, it's Dr. Bradley, which we're very pleased to have. Adam will introduce her in just a second. A uh, couple of uh, announcements. Uh, you, you probably tuned into the governor's press conference yesterday. And uh, Connecticut is going to be the first state that has a FEMA uh, mobile vaccination van. I think that's coming in. And the nice thing about that is it can go around. Uh, areas that actually need the vaccine. Uh, Hartford specifically is a is a city. The the inner city is one that where vaccination rates have really lagged behind the rest of the state of Connecticut. Connecticut as a state is getting close to forty percent now uh, for vaccination, but the city of Hartford is less than fifteen percent, and that gives you a sense of the disparities that we're we're experiencing right now in terms of uh, uptake for the vaccine. Some of that is uptake, some of that is availability, making it easy. Uh, so I, I understand there are two things that are going to happen. One is making make a, a walk-up vaccination without prior registration in some areas, which is going to be very important, just making it easy for everyone. And then the mobile vans, which actually will go around in areas that actually to, to get vaccinated, that will begin to close the gap, it, specifically with our Latino community and our African-American community that is lagging behind uh, other uh, groups in, in Connecticut. The, the other thing that we will be doing here at Connecticut Children's is uh, vaccinating kids that are very very high risk of either a disease or that haven't been able to be incorporated into their normal uh, activities uh, by going to school, et cetera, because they're sheltering in place, concerned for COVID-19. And so this uh, week we sent 6,000 emails out to our families uh, who were identified uh, by a group uh, led by Laurie Pelletier and Chris Grindle and others to make sure that we uh, prioritize those kids over the age of 16 that have uh, severe uh, comorbidities uh, and and those individuals have received their email and they'll be able to pre-register directly through uh, the, the uh, my port the, the the portal for uh, for epic uh, they'll be getting an invitation to come get vaccinated so more more on that and there's a lot of information on the internet regarding that issue uh, so again hang in there we'll be we'll be making it through this and we'll try to help our kids as much as we can I'm going to ask Adam now to introduce our speaker and then Dr. Bradley will uh, lead us to a fantastic presentation. Adam. Dr. Salazar, thank you for that generous introduction. 
If there's anyone in global health who I can say that I most admire and aspire to emulate, it's Dr. Elizabeth Bradley. But to explain, I have to start at the beginning of my relationship with Dr. Bradley. The co-founder of our Center for Global Health, Karen Callahan, told me about a colleague of hers in the context of Betsy is a leader in global health and she watched my kids while I was in nursing school and working. She took care of all the kids. They would make brownies. They would put on plays. She's just amazing. Let's go down to New Haven and see her. I said, sure, who, who doesn't like a road trip? But I had to do a little background on Dr. Bradley, Karen's old friend, and quickly realized I was going down to see global health royalty. Sure, she'd graduated magna cum laude from Harvard, had an MBA from the University of Chicago and a PhD from Yale, and she'd written over 320 peer-reviewed journal articles and co-authored three books, including The American Healthcare Paradox, Why Spending More is Getting Us Less. But she'd also been elected to the National Academy of Medicine in 2017 and was the 2018 recipient of the William B. Graham Prize for Health Services Research. And at that time, she was the head of Brantford College at Yale. But with regards to global health, I found out that she was the founder and faculty director of the Yale Global Health Institute, a program with a $5 million annual budget, 69 faculty, 400 students, and programs in dozens of countries. But of all her accomplishments, the role that I find most interesting and what she'll speak of today was that she was the director of the Brady Johnson program in Grand Strategy. This university-wide interdisciplinary program focuses on discovering ways of achieving large ends with limited means. Using a variety of tools from the classics, economics, history, anthropology, sociology, really all of the academic specialties, and bringing these to uh, bear in the global health re uh, realm to try and find ways of helping uh, people in resource-limited settings um, to achieve better health and better lives. So after being warmly hosted and mentored at Yale that afternoon and continuing to follow Dr. Bradley's ascent to her current role as president of Vassar College, I knew that I had to do whatever it would take to have her join us here at Connecticut Children's so she could share with our community her knowledge and experience in global health. Dr. Bradley, thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh my goodness. Thank you, Adam. That was such a generous, uh, particularly reminding me of making brownies for Karen Callahan's kids. That together, one of them is now a chef, I just want to say, <laughs> but she learned how to make brownies with me. But thank you so much, um, Dr. Silverman. I remember that afternoon at Yale too and was very inspired by the work that you're doing and so glad that we've been able to uh, continue. And um, I also really want to thank Nicole who prepped me yesterday and is keeping us on track today if we have any problems, I think. Um, but let, and at last, I want to thank Karen Callahan, who I believe is here from Bay State, um, where she is now. So Karen, thinking of you and so nice to um, have you listening to the story of Ethiopia. Uh, so now I think what I'll do is um, share my slides, um, if I can. And let's see, yep, this works. Um, but we're going to have to go back quite a bit because that's the end. Um, let me just see. It's going to look like I'm going to give you a very long talk, but I'm not. I promise there are tons of pictures, and I hope it will be interesting for you. Okay. So, one more. Okay. Okay. So here we are. We're going to talk about grand strategy and global health. And what I'd like to do is um, I kind of have three goals. I want to give a conceptual framework of grand strategy. What the heck is that? And then I'd like to show its application to global health, particularly in the context of a case study, which will be a decade of work in Ethiopia. So let's start at the beginning. Adam gave us the definition of um, 
grand strategy. And there are many controversial, lots of people talk about what it really means, but I like to boil it down to this. It's a plan of action for achieving large ends with limited means. And don't we always face that? Our ends are human health and our means are like our public health system, which all, never has enough resources in it and other means as well that are limited. We usually think of grand strategy as something that might happen at the top, you know, that's the Congress is worried about it, Parliament or, you know, it's the, it's the, armor, it's the um, architecture of sort of how nations run. And in fact, grand strategy really began out of Sunza's work and the art of war, and it was applied to war. So how would we possibly use this for good? How would we possibly use tactics and strategies that have been developed um, through military for something exactly the opposite? Something, and how would we use something that's developed for the tops and actually use it in a grassroots approach, in an inclusive approach? So that's what I wanna talk about today. A schematic for grand strategy, and I think for those of you who are clinicians, this will really resonate in terms of even how you deal with trying to solve the problem of an individual patient, but of course I think in broader systems. But grand strategy has to take a look at first, what is the current state? What are we in right now? What's the problem? And that should involve what are the root causes of the problem? What's the history that got us to this place? And then grand strategy focuses on, okay, but what's the desired state? You know, if you had an individual patient, so the problem is they're sick with blah, 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 and the objective is health. If you're looking at an entire system, you might say, you know, um, inequities, the major problem is inequities and horrible quality of care, and you want to get to where you have equitable and high quality of care. And then grand strategy thinks, well, how do I move from my current state to my desired state? And furthermore, what are the implementation, and that would be the strategy, what I do, and then what are the implementation tactics? How do I actually get that done? And then last, grand strategy really sees itself as a very ecological approach to something. In other words, it's not really linear. You could end up you know, thinking about the strategy and then you try to implement it, it just doesn't work. So you gotta go back, new strategy. So that's why all these double head arrows everywhere. But this system put together of all these component parts are really what make up grand strategy. And again, in the context of military, an objective would be to win the war, but in the context of health, it'd be quite something different, you know, to produce maybe equity or maybe human health broadly. So now I would like to, um, talk about just a couple of key selected principles in this before diving into the concrete of a case to um, show these principles. So one critical principle in strategy and grand strategy is to start with the end in mind. You know, it's not like you wake up in the morning and you say, what am I gonna do today? It's more you wake up in the morning and say, at the end of this, where am I gonna be? That's a really different way. And, and I do think clinicians think this way very often because the end in mind, like how do I get this patient healthy? Health is always at the end. But often when we get mired in a really complex thing, I'm sure Adam would say this in Haiti and I certainly found it in Ethiopia, you're barraged with so many issues, you can hardly remember what the end is. So grand strategy reminds us to start with the end in mind. It takes an ecological approach, meaning um, every discipline you can find, every piece of information. It's not medical only. Uh, when we think of applying this to global health, it's really thinking of all those social contexts and family contexts and political contexts um, that, that presses on the problem. And then implementation tactics matter. You know, there've been many examples of people with fabulous strategies. They got great ideas, but they just can't get anything done. 
And this, um, you know, in political analysis, we look at Woodrow Wilson, for instance, with the League of Nations, brilliant idea, never worked. Um, uh, and, and there are many, many others of these that I'm sure that you're smiling because you know situations of your own where you've got the big idea, but the actual implementation fails. So that's an important piece. Um, a fourth really important uh, concept here is positive deviance. That strategy is often it hasn't been done before. You haven't been in exactly the same situation before and it, it's a conundrum what to do. So often we look to positive deviance, meaning a case somewhere that has been similar where there has been an exceptional outcome. What have they done? And this I think is a very important piece of applying grand strategy to global health. That in modern terminology, we might say is a really decolonizing uh, aspect of this. Positive deviance means go to the ground where something has worked, really understand what have been the details and the tactics of that, and try to see if you can learn from that, engaging fully um, before trying to scale something like that up. And then last, invest constantly in timely and valid data. So we're all scientists, so data is absolutely critical whether it's qualitative or quantitative, to really understand, okay, we put out this big change, what have we actually accomplished? And Adam said, I've published a lot and I'm, I'm really very devoted to um, trying to understand in a timely way data and getting it out so people can actually learn from it and you learn from it yourself. So now I would like to move into, those were sort of, um, the conceptual framework of grand strategy. Um, and what I'd like to move into now is actually the case study. So I'll talk a bit about um, what we, let me just move this on my screen, okay. Talk a bit about what this case was all about. So it's a case of Ethiopia. Um, it's from 2006 to 2016 and still much, much, much is going on there. And we can talk about the current day issues. You can see I spent a fair amount of time in Tigray, which is where um, the budding civil war is right now. This YouTube, and you can definitely pass my slides out, is a really great YouTube, which I'm not gonna have time to show, that is really a um, video of the whole story as it unfolded. And um, we did that for the Gates Foundation and um, you might enjoy that um, to get a real sense of what this was like. Okay, so where's my cursor? Oh, here we go, okay. So the, um, this work was a collaborative between the Clinton Foundation for HIV and AIDS Initiative, it's now called um, uh, Chai, the health, uh, what do they call themselves, health improvement initiative, the government of Ethiopia, Jima University, which is in Ethiopia, and Yale University School of Public Health. And the story really begins with a friendship. Um, this is Bill, President Bill Clinton and now our uh, Director General of the WHO, Dr. Tedros, on the right. And it really began with the two of them hitting it off. And President Clinton is like this. He would travel the world and he would make friends in high places and he would say, how can I help you? And President Clinton decided that Dr. Tedros was in his words and President Clinton's words, a rock star. And that there was no minister, at this time he was the minister of health. He'd been the minister of health for one month when that picture was taken. Um, there was no one in Africa that was a better minister of health. And President Clinton said, we're gonna help him no matter what. And so Dr. Tedros described to President Clinton, the current state in my country is I have horrible quality healthcare. And the desired state he had was high quality healthcare. Of course, that's very broad. 
And he decided on a particular strategy to try to move from poor quality to high quality. And it's an interesting and sort of out of the box strategy. Dr. Tedro said, I wanna improve the management capacity of my hospitals. Now what's weird about that? I mean, most people in public health don't begin with the hospital. They begin with primary care. They begin with the social determinants, water, um, safe shelter, food. Um, and he's minister of health. Interestingly, um, that wasn't where he wanted to begin. And he took a lot of criticism for this, that he was beginning in the medical world. And more than that, he was beginning with management, which isn't even the clinical care. Um, now, in truth, his experience was he had had to run their healthcare system actually in Tigray where he had been the medical director before. And he had sort of realized as he became minister of health that it wasn't just a clinical job, it was a political job. And that his population was starting to grow into having a more middle class, a more beginning to have some sense that they ought to be able to have good hospital care. In other words, he was reaching beyond all we're gonna do here is primary care. He was reaching to, there's no reason we shouldn't have a good hospital system. And I believe that he believed that would also be politically very, very um, attractive, which it was. Now, why he began it with management, I have no idea. It really was his insight that actually you can have all the resources in the world, but if you don't manage them well, you're never gonna move forward. And he also believed that if you manage things well, you'll be developing leadership capacity with that. Ultimately, the implementation of this grand strategy was using a systems-based approach to scale improvements in um, first hospitals and then primary care settings across Ethiopia. Now, the way I got involved, which I can't remember my next slide, but the way I got involved is um, President Clinton um, talked to one of his friends and said, do you know anybody in academics that does anything in hospital administration? And the weirdest thing in the world, one of my students who I had trained in hospital administration at Yale was actually working with the Clinton Foundation that summer. So this is total like out of the box, you couldn't predict it. And um, he said, oh, you know what? My professor knows something about hospital management. And weird thing is I had been a hospital administrator at MGH in Boston for um, six years before I went into academics. So my student said, yeah, I think, you know, you should go see Betsy. Um, so uh, the director of CHAI came to Yale and talked to me all about what their vision was and who Dr. Tedros was. And I, I just, you know, I guess at the end of the day, I just thought uh, maybe I could help them. Um, even though I'd never been to Ethiopia, which I think in many ways helped me because I was fully open when I went there. And actually what I did was write a grant to the Clinton Foundation, which they funded. Um, and I spent a lot of my sabbatical year there, um, which I happened to be on sabbatical, you know, weird synchronicity, how things happen. Um, and that grant in funding it, my first trip, I went with my husband with um, leaving three children at home, probably with the Callahan kids. Um, and Honestly, I spent three or four weeks there and I just, I never looked back. After that, I just knew there were ways we could really make a difference here um, with both the ability of having sort of the tops, if you will, the you know Minister of Health and he had tremendous political capital and the value system that we're gonna start with positive deviance. We're gonna start <coughs> with the front line, what is actually happening there. Um, so our first initiative was a hospital management initiative, 14 hospitals in five regions. Hospitals were picked um, because they had capacity and they were 
probably politically connected. And if they did well, they could start momentum. Um, and we hired 25 people who had had hospital administration experience um, and had worked internationally. Uh, it was a very international team. Um, they became Yale Clinton Foundation fellows um, and they lived in Ethiopia side by side um, with these hospitals. They became mentors. They were not people who did the work. They mentored Ethiopians who were in the um, in hospitals, particularly the directors of the hospitals. Now, interestingly, all of them had to learn language um, and they were amazing, but they lived in the most um, difficult circumstances, um, cholera epidemics, frequent very, very difficult circumstances. And yet they were connected to the Minister of Health. So it was always this interesting, um, as we talk about decolonization, always this interesting um, sort of connection, the top to the absolute front line. They did a total of 61 management projects, which were like experiments. Um, and we, at the same time, trained 75 of the national Ethiopian staff, and they completed a certificate program through Jimma University with um, Yale faculty. And ultimately, over that two years, also created a blueprint, which I'll show you a picture of in a little bit, um, a blueprint for how to actually manage hospitals. And again, these are small hospitals. When I started in Ethiopia, there were um, about 95 million people and 100 hospitals. That's it. Um, so they were small hospitals. Many of them were 50 beds. Some were 200 beds. The biggest was maybe 400 beds. So these were really, you could, they, and they weren't automated. There were no computers. So you could really wrap your hands around writing a blueprint for how you would actually manage a hospital in that situation. So um, this is where the 14 hospitals were really all over the country, although um, we stayed out of some of the more dangerous areas on the Eritrean coast and also this side of the Somalia coast, we stayed away from um, both of which were really not very safe. So here are some of the Yale Clinton fellows working with their um, Ethiopian counterparts, just to give you a sense of what it was like. And you know, this was I, probably the medical records room in one um, hospital. They did many, many different quality improvement projects. So these are just the infection prevention projects, medical records, human resources, nursing, um, et cetera. BPR was a business process re-engineering, which was kind of their word for quality improvement, which we learned also this international staff had to just throw away everything they knew in some ways. And, adopt what the new language really was. And living um, in the villages and in the towns, I think was very helpful to that. We did evaluate and study this um, on the basis of 40 management indicators, which were things like, you know, do they have an inventory system? Yes, no. Um, do, they, do they have um, uh, ways to get clean water? Yes, no. I mean, there are a whole set of these. Do they have guidelines? Do they have a formulary? Um, and is someone keeping the formulary up? Yes, no. These kinds of things. And um, we did see that the percent of these indicators fulfilled over, this was just the very first year, um, really went up. This one, particularly for rural hospitals, had so far to go um, and continued. And this was really just our first, again, I, I care a lot about data, our first attempt to try to study, are we making a difference here? Um, and then just, I said I'd show pictures. So this is a classic medical record room. This was at Shashamani Hospital before. I hope it doesn't look this way at Connecticut Children's. You know, and this is after all of the quality improvement efforts. Or pharmacy warehouse, this was before. They're really in hospitals, there was no inventory system because they never ordered medications. They just got dumped it by the state, by the um, uh, Ministry of Health when 
donations came in from high income areas, hospitals just, there wasn't a poll system. There was a like, oops, it showed up, put it in the pharmacy. So this is how most pharmacies looked and you couldn't find anything. And then this is how ultimately they looked. Um, facilities management, um, just a before and after building an incinerator, which are critical in Ethiopia hospitals to um, be able to deal with hazardous waste. And in particular, thinking of hazardous waste, waste management, this was before, um, this is in Tigray, and this is after. So there were a lot of just basic like cleanup things, but you know, how do you manage a staff to clean up when that's not really what the value system is? Um, it's not as easy as it sounds. You know, we might look at that and go, my goodness, just hire. Well, there's no one to hire. I mean, you're in a small village and this is the mess to clean up. So establishing what are the standards for this? Who is in charge of this? What happens accountability? What happens if they don't do it? Not easy, actually not that easy. So I mentioned the blueprint. Um, in addition to all these projects, we used those projects that worked. And as I say, there were 61 projects, some worked, some didn't, but we used those to create a blueprint for hospital management in Ethiopia. And in this blueprint were eight chapters of the key pieces, patient flow, pharmacy, facilities management, admission, bed management, just the basics, how do you run a hospital that you know is small and, um, and not automated. Lab, there was a big section on labs. And we created standards, almost like JACO standards we have in the United States that would be standards by which the hospital would be evaluated. Um, and then in this, this was probably by the third year, we started a program which was educational with Jimma, not just for a certificate, but a full degree that people could get a master's in hospital administration. And we ultimately trained every single director, which they wanted to call, I have a funny story about this CEO role. One of the things in 2006 in these hospitals, you'd have a medical director who was a physician and no manager, just like it's all physicians and nurses and assistants and no, no one who pays the bills, no one who tracks accountability, no one who makes sure the pharmacy is working, none of that. And so Dr. Tedro said, you know, and we also said, you really, you gotta have someone who's in charge, like you need an administrator. And um, he bought that and they just would not call it an administrator. They wanted to call it a CEO. And I said, that's so corporate. This is the opposite of what we're trying to do. And he said, no, absolutely. This needs to be a CEO. So this role, the CEO role became really sought after. Tedros helped rewrite the um, legislation so that the CEO roles actually were paid quite well, not over physicians, but quite well. Um, created governing boards, which didn't exist, that would kind of hold accountable and have community members on it. Um, and also created retained revenue, which meant that by law, if the hospital actually was got a budget and if they were actually able to manage within that budget, they could keep what was let left over to plow back into patient care. And that was transformational. It was, I guess, bringing a little capitalism to the country, but in very, um, I think, contained in reasonable ways. So it was just interesting to work through this. We had the technical input, but to make all these structural changes really required the Minister of Health and all of his, um, I don't know, clout really to create those structural changes and they made a big difference. Um, we did look at the fulfillment of standards over time and um, this was actually the paper on what the model was and this was the paper on showing <laughs> pre-post study. <laughs> what happened with fulfilling the management indicators. And it was a good story. 
Um, we also published about the governing boards. You know, governing boards in the United States are like, of course, you always have governing boards, but this totally was a foreign concept in Ethiopia. And governing boards, although sometimes we think cynically now in the US, oh, they're just for fundraising and they're all the rich people. You know, the concept of governance is that the community holds accountable this hospital. And so we created community-based governing boards, um, trained them all on what governance was, crazy. Um, and this is a paper about implementing those governing boards. And we looked at um, what happened in those hospitals with high-functioning governing boards and what happened in those hospitals with low-functioning governing boards. And in the high-functioning ones, there are all kinds of good indicators like faster patient care, much greater satisfaction by the patients um, in satisfaction surveys later, um, and uh, also retention of staff, which was a major problem in the beginning there, how to retain staff. So um, it was sort of an interesting piece to bring, which is again, both high level, but also very grassroots to actually have the community members be board members. Um, we then designed, because part of this is you, you can do a lot in a few hospitals, um, but then how do you scale it? How do you make this something that becomes the norm? And again, Dr. Tedros was very ambitious. Um, so I brought to him a concept of collaboratives because we had done the door to balloon collaborative, which was a collaborative to try to reduce um, time for people with STEMI to get to uh, angioplasty. And we'd done this sort of cool national collaborative here that really transformed that. And so we brought the idea to Ethiopia to say, have you ever heard of collaborative? We could get these hospitals together in clusters and they could teach each other. And that's exactly what happened. Um, it was very interesting to work with the culture there um, because it's a very collective, collaborative culture. So as soon as we described what this was, they were all like, oh yeah, who's, who's our cluster? We want to work with each other. Very, very different from a more American individualism oriented, like, well, they're my competitor. They were much more like, yeah, we would love to work with a cluster of hospitals. So um, this began, and um, again, there's a pre-post study with this, which um, was quite transformational. And then last, in terms of systems, which I guess is part of this talk, is the idea of working at the front line on very basic things like a par level system for inventory, but at the same time thinking what in the national sphere could you change to make what improvement you see at very grassroots replicate. So this um, ended up being a national system for monitoring the performance of hospitals, and um, this is in the bulletin of the WHO. And uh, very interesting, oops, sorry, my cursor. Uh, oops, oh dear, where is my cursor? Here it is, okay. okay. This, um, this system worked on 130 by this time um, hospitals. This was a system where we took everything that was learned about what the standards should be and how to monitor standards and developed a wing of the Ministry of Health. Um, and in each district, there was also a group that did this that became like joint commission surveyors. And they visited the hospitals, which had to be funded, that was not easy, to actually do an annual, okay, how are you doing in your indicators? And of course, this took a lot of training to get people motivated for this and a lot of culture building because the idea of monitoring, holding accountable was just not in the not in the hospital system originally, but ultimately um, the system still exists. So hospitals still undergo um, an annual review according to a whole set of guidelines. Um, and you know, it, it worked a lot with the um, system leadership. Um, 
So once this was done in the hospitals, uh, Tedros, and by this time, we had trained a lot of people. Cassette became the next minister, and he'd been one of our early students. And now the current minister is one of our early students, Leah Tedese. She was one of our very first, um, and a woman. Um, we, the government decided we want to do something in our rural area. So it's so interesting because from a public health point of view, you'd start with the primary and you'd build up to like, you know, your um, secondary system or your tertiary system. And Tedros went just the opposite. And, and I think the success in the hospitals, um, I think he probably felt that he could get his hands around it. It was only 100 and 130 institutions, not that many people. And it would be so obvious that things changed. Like, babies would actually live because they would be born. In, oh, we did a ton of work in maternity um, care actually with a whole set of people who are um, nurses in that area. But the idea of like immediately seeing, oh my gosh, my baby's gonna live. I mean, it was sort of transformational because it wasn't as, um, I don't know, it's hard sometimes. You've gotta show something that makes people go, oh, wow, I wanna do that. And that's what hosp good hospital care did. But within five or six years, um, they really wanted to work in their rural area. And so we used a very similar system, a systems-based approach to improving rural care. Um, and again, there are systems of rural care, basic clinics, um, and governance systems in those that we worked with in the, using the exact same approach. And it was called the Ethiopian Millennium Rural Initiative, uh, EMRI. And um, this was, there were multiple targets, um, skilled birth attendants, um, prenatal, antenatal care, you know, four visits before, um, et cetera. And I'll show you some, oh, I'll show you some data right here on the EMRI. Um, the, the EMRI went on for probably about three years, and this was at the very beginning. Um, and so this involved education, it involved outreach, it involved um, you know, better management, how do you get the supplies to the clinics, et cetera. And um, this shows you the on the left, the average um, antenatal care visit coverage, you can see went up from like 40% to like 100%. In the areas that this intervention went, it transformed those villages. These were small, small um, uh, experiments, however. And the skilled birth attendant coverage did not improve very much. And we sort of struggled with what was wrong there. Um, ultimately understood it as a very huge shortage in labor uh, to be able to do this. And a lot of trust issues, a lot of issues of trust. And of course, transportation, very, very tough. Um, and then on the right-hand side was the HIV testing, which was just another large thing. We wanted everybody to get HIV tested um, in their antenatal care. And that really worked very, very well. Ultimately, we had to evaluate this relative to its cost effectiveness. And it was found to be cost effective. Um, it's not slam dunk by any means, um, but it was cost effective in this moment. And um, I don't actually know how much, well, actually that's not true. So this study came out, um, okay, this study came out and then um, USAID, which I guess in a funny way in global health is, I, I'm very conflicted about it because all of our money came from the Clinton Foundation, the Children's um, Defense, um, CIF, Children's Investment Foundation Fund in London and the Gates Foundation. I loved working with these people. They trusted us, they wanted us to do what was best for Ethiopia. We never did USAID um, funding. And ultimately when this project completed and we did the cost effectiveness, what ultimately happened is USAID put out a call for scaling up this project 
and adding other things to it because it was massive. And that ultimately happened. Um, and I haven't stayed involved to know what the impact of that was, but I guess that's some kind of success. You start with something small and then eventually if the major funders take it up, it just becomes part of how they do their business there. But it's hard because when you work with AS USAID, you're working with millions and millions of other um, um, NGOs and it can be quite political. Every time you show a slide, you have to brand it USAID. I mean, it's just a very different feel than it felt with President Clinton and Tedros when it was almost like a friendship that gave birth to, we're gonna help your country out. Um, so that was a special moment. So um, just going back to um, sort of grand strategy, these were the topics I said were sort of principles of it. And you can see how these were at, um, uh, at play in the project we did in Ethiopia. Starting with the end in mind, Tedros was very clear, we're gonna improve the quality of these hospitals. Um, take an ecological approach. Again, we worked on things that were um, incredibly basic, like how to clean up the backyard, to pharmacy systems, to lab systems, to management systems, to boards. So really not thinking it's just one thing you have to do, but it's a thousand things you have to do. Um, the implementation tactics. So all the little pieces that went into that blueprint, which ended up being, this was really funny, one, one of my visits when I went there, Tedros was wanting to um, talk to everyone about how they were going to have to pull up their socks and do a better job in hospitals. And I thought that we'd given this blueprint to the ministry. I didn't have any idea he was going to copy it 200 times and hand it out in this national meeting. Like, this is the blueprint now for how we're running hospitals. And it was shocking to me because we'd been like working on it in airports and suddenly, okay, that's going to be the standard for the country. But what was interesting about it is it had come from those basic frontline projects. It wasn't like on high, it actually got grew up from seeing these things happen actually implemented. Um, so it was very tactical. And we used positive deviance because in those projects that worked, we put those in the blueprint and started to scale them. And other things just were failures and we ignored them and moved on. Um, and then invest in timely and valid data. I think you can see that we constantly were using data to figure out, are we actually improving anything here? Um, and then I just wanted to take a moment to uh, talk about the actions by the grand strategists um, themselves. So I've studied a lot and actually a different paper on how Tedros did this, because I, I really, it's never about one person, but um, he really, I think, or is emblematic of someone who can coordinate a major system. So he had tremendous clarity of purpose from the get-go. He had read about grand strategy. He was like, I know what I'm doing and we got to try to make this happen. He believed from the get-go, the country has to own this. Um, so country ownership with authentic engagement with complementary partners. You know, he just said, yeah, I don't, and you'll notice all those papers Ethiopians are publishing with us. The country had to own all of it. And we were technical supports. They were the political um, piece of it. But then we were very authentically engaged and basically wanting to fulfill, you know, what that country wanted to fulfill. He stayed focused and he kind of right-sized it at the right time. And that's a tough thing because you always have aspirations. You know, our aspirations are infinite and our resources are finite. 
and trying to figure out like how much to do when so that you're inspiring people, but you're not just deflating them because you just can't get it done. That's really important. And um, he did a really nice job on that, growing it when it could be grown, but also saying, no, 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 we're not gonna take on the whole system. We're gonna focus on hospitals first. Um, and I would really say he empowered, and, and we all empowered the middle management. And these are people who are in touch with the front line but also stretch sometimes to the strategic tops. And that linchpin is what ultimately allows the frontline to really have power. And I think we forget that sometimes, that there is, there's gotta be a connection to, um, to find that sustainable um, empowering force. Just the frontline has the good ideas, but it needs the tops and the middle is what connects those. And then last, attention to political requirements. I mean, you know, he and uh, other people were very smart in figuring out what politically would work and what politically would just not work. Um, so I, I, I emerge with these sort of five areas of like, those are good actions if you really wanna make change somewhere. So I'm gonna um, end now just with three pictures that um, sort of are the good, the bad and the ugly um, of this. And then I'd be happy to take any questions if people have. Um, this was, I was in this um, white car and I was not driving, um, but this was maybe one of the lowest times um, I had in Ethiopia, um, which is we were driving um, to a major conference of all of the sort of Ministry of Health is for the whole country, but then they have the smaller for each of the regions um, to really do a workout of where are we. And this truck, this huge truck, which is a water truck, um, was being driven by an eight-year-old boy and just out of nowhere, this is the road going down, came out of the field, just like who knows, and slowly went across the road and we just crashed right into it. Um, and it was intense. Um, the boy, I mean, can you imagine an eight-year-old driving that? It was chaos. But you know, the entire um, neighborhood came out and in time we got ourselves back together and someone drove us to the conference after and we were very late, but that was kind of the worst time because I thought, you know, you just cannot have a car accident in the middle of Ethiopia. There are just not hospitals for you to do really well with in that. So um, that was scary. And this was one of my happiest times, um, which this is me and this was my colleague. And this was, um, uh, one of our, and this actually was the Minister of Health eventually, but this is one of our early classes um, in the MHA program and everybody who had graduated after working so, so, so hard. Um, and that was just, I remember being in this fancy hotel, which there are not very many and feeling like, wow, we got them through it. That's, that was a cool day. Um, and then last, I like to have this picture, one, because I look like a lot younger. Um, and I, uh, you know, really have benefited from my friendship with Dr. Tedros, who I still stay in touch with quite a bit. And um, it's really interesting working with him a bit now in his role in the WHO. Um, and with that, I will thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Bradley, for a, a really, truly a, a remarkable presentation and case history of what what you have done uh, in, the, in a truly remarkable career, frankly. And uh, we have a number of questions, but I, I thought I would begin with a statement and a question. And, and Adam will obviously also respond to these, but uh, I found a piece uh, from you in, from 2011, I believe, which is called Grand Strategy and Global Health, uh, the Case of Ethiopia. And, yeah. and I'm just gonna read a, a paragraph, which is so, so apropos of to the, in, in, the, in the COVID era, it says, globalization has brought the world's most daunting challenges 
to the doorstep of these formerly sheltered by diplomatic, economic, and social isolationism. Our um, interconnectedness, in particular apparent in the realm of health, where microscopic threats such as SARS and H1N1 have demonstrated the spread and the speed of their intercontinental reach. Um, really remarkable. You know, and this was in 2011, and here move forward yeah. to 2020-21 with with SARS-CoV-2 and, and, and what it means. And, and so, so my, my question, a comment and a question is, is uh, in, in the context of the current pandemic, um, give me a sense of sustainability of, of the things that were done in Ethiopia. Have they continued? Have they persisted? And, and you know, what has this pandemic taught us in terms of what we can do in, uh, in, 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 a, in a country like Ethiopia? Yeah, um, great question, and thank you for reading those old papers. I appreciate that. Uh, well, what's sustained in Ethiopia is um, really, really interesting. So Dr. Leah Tadesse is their Minister of Health now. She, as I said, was one of our early students. She is a rock star. Um, she ran um, one of the hospitals there when we first got there and now is just amazing. And if you follow her on Twitter, you will see an amazing unrolling of COVID um, prevention. Um, masking, of course, they have, uh, they recently got vaccines, but tiny, tiny amount. Um, but actually their number of deaths have been very limited. I mean, considering now, I don't know, it might be a hundred and 10 million people there now, maybe more. Um, they do not have COVID nearly to the degree that you might think, you know, when we think of like HIV, oh my gosh, it was all over Africa, Southern Africa, et cetera. That really hasn't happened with COVID in Ethiopia. And I think um, in large part, that's because they do have a communication system now, a management system. And I, I recently just tweeted private to her to say, how's it going with the CEOs? And she said, oh, we, we're still on it, completely still on it. And you can just see if you watch them, the amount of transformation of their hospital now, um, you know, they have electronic medical records. It, it's like a, a new place. So I think much of that um, has sustained. What I think they're really working, um, really challenged on is working in the international setting. You know, for a long time, Ethiopia was just a, um, what do you call it, a favored child of the United States um, militarily for lots of political reasons and also economically. Um, and under the Trump administration, that really got cut off. And I think that was a real struggle. At this point, I think that in fact, um, if we continue the kind of support that the US has supported um, in many countries, particularly in Ethiopia, you know, I think their systems are really doing quite well. The place that we, you know, how do you deal with this, this war really in Tigray um, completely breaks my heart. I'm sure some of the women who have been raped on their way to Sudan are have been students and people that we worked with. It's horrifying. And, um, you know, I think they're bringing every um, ounce of political savvy to it to try to resolve this, you know, with the African Union and the US involvement. But that kind of thing, you know, how do you sustain through war? That's tough. You know, there, I think we really have issues. Thank um, you for that. Yeah. Thank you for that response. Uh, let, let me move on to the uh, to some questions. And um, a que this is a very specific question. How does payment for healthcare work in Ethiopia? Okay, yeah. Well, actually, they've tried a lot of different things. Um, but um, 
pretty much it depends whether you're public or private sector. There is insurance for private sector and you, if you're rich, you can get insurance and it works just like it does here. However, for the public um, hospitals, um, they get a budget from the um, government and they work with that. People go for free care. It's free, completely free for a whole set of things that are really the public health um, issues. And then that hospital has to live within that budget that's given by the, um, by the government. So that's mostly how it works. In those free places, um, of course, there's corruption and people will um, make underpayments at time to get you know, the actual particular surgeon they want or whatever that does happen as it probably does in every country. Um, and, and the other thing I would say is they're growing their insurance scheme. So you have to have a middle class to have an insurance scheme. You, know, you need someone to put in the money to actually get that risk protection. Um, and that, that's kind of uh, a project that they're working pretty heavily on. Thank you. A uh, question from Judy Lewis, uh, who has worked extensively in the developing world. Uh, uh, good to have you here, Judy. Uh, great success story. I work in Haiti and have difficulty thinking how this could happen without stable leadership. My question is, how did this interface with a community level and the health development army building on health extension workers yeah. during the time the hospital initiative was underway? I'm not sure I read that correctly, but it no, was... No, you uh, did. Yeah, I know. I Thank you so much, um, Judy. I appreciate this question. Uh, well, in the time when we were doing the hospital initiative, which was really, it's gone for the whole decade, but it began in 2006, the health development army hadn't yet been developed, um, but the health extension workers were being developed and Tedros already had Hopkins and other places that were really working to train those health extension workers. Maybe you were involved. Um, ultimately by about 2010, when we started to work on the primary care, the PTI, the EMRI I described, that worked exactly on that health development army and those health extension workers. So ultimately um, that investment in those made it possible to make those changes that happened in the Ethiopian millennial uh, rural initiative. And stable leadership, yes. Um, as Adam said, I've worked in many, many countries and people um, ask all the time, have asked all the time whether we would come and work a little bit with their country, having heard from Tedros and others that we worked well with them. And we made a lot of decisions all the time where we would work. Um, and it was, we had to be invited. Um, we had to trust the leadership that they really had public health in their brains, that they weren't just doing this for whatever prestige thing um, and that they had some clout in the country, that it was stable. and. You know, um, I was in Egypt during the uprising and that we misjudged. We didn't realize that we were not going to be able to um, work with a steady government there. But I think you're 100 percent right on that. Great. Thank you. This uh, is a specific question. Uh, what is the Futures Institute in Glastonbury? I guess it was one of the one of the authorships. Yeah, that, I, I don't know if they still exist, but they used to do a lot of cost effectiveness studies um, in Glastonbury. And they're a group of researchers, um, really strong and had done a lot of global health research kind of on their own, writing grants, et cetera, kind of like a mini, mini, mini RAND. Um, and I worked with them for a while. One of my students actually worked there. So that was my collaboration. Uh, from Dr. Ching Lao, who's the head of our oncology program. Uh, thanks for a great talk. It is interesting that you pointed out that in Ethiopia, they started with the hospitals first instead of the primary care system. This yeah. reminds me of the situation in China where there's not much primary care outside of the hospitals. So the hospitals are the hubs of all healthcare and probably would benefit from similar strategies you described in Ethiopia. Was the healthcare system in Ethiopia similar when the Clinton Initiative was launched? Um, I would say it was. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, it's funny that you say there's no resources in China outside that hospital, if I understood correctly. In Ethiopia, um, 
I would say that before the health extension workers happened, there was nothing. Um, but that, that initiative began around 2007, 2008, maybe even a little bit before. So I might say that the primary care system might have been stronger than what you've described um, in China. But the hospitals, I also did some work in China. Um, and in terms of rural China, the hospitals in rural China looked a lot like the hospitals in Ethiopia, yeah. And then one last question that I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Silverman to comment also at, uh, from one of our third year residents uh, from Iceland, who's going to be in the, I believe, either the Peace Corps or she, or Doctors Without Borders, perhaps, is where she's going next year. Uh, thank you for a great talk. You mentioned that the American mentors learned the language. How important do you think that was for the success of the project? Critical. Absolutely critical. I don't know what to say. I mean, that's why I said it. Um, I also learned a fair amount of Amharic, so anyone want to talk? I could probably say a few things here. Um, but the ability to understand, even if you can't speak, um, then the actual language being spoken is just fundamental. It, it creates friendship. And, you know, at least in Ethiopia, um, they loved us struggling over the various vowels that we don't have in, in English. And um, and I think they it sort of made a common bond. And then I remember, you know, when I spent a lot more time there, I got much better at it. And, you know, you just start to realize, oh, wait, I know what they're talking about now. Whereas if you really don't know what they're talking about, it's impossible. And then if you work in the rural areas, nobody speaks English, not, not one person. Um, and in the cities, you know, a fair amount of people will be able to talk a little bit of English, but you're not really getting the straight story from that. So I think it's really paramount. And even if you're a scientist and you think you're bad at language, you can pick up anything, <laughs> you know, if you struggle at it and at least enough words to understand what's going on. Dr. Silverman. This is fantastic. I, I cannot thank you enough for uh, this presentation and, and just, I mean, how much I feel like I've learned in this hour and, and what I'm going to take back to some of the work that I'm doing. One of the, uh, I guess, questions or things that, that we struggle with in, in supporting our partners in Haiti is, and because we work in a similar way, you described that, that we're really consultants. Um, they've asked us to come in. They have things that uh, they would like to improve, pediatric care and Cape Haitian uh, in the north of Haiti. And uh, they struggle with issues of accountability of their staff. Um, how do they try to learn to manage the things that they are doing, as you've described? Are there any truisms that you found worked uh, in Ethiopia um, with accountability, starting with a culture that maybe didn't have that same concept that, that we sort of get used to here. Um, but how did you find the staff was able, or the middle management was able to work with frontline staff on issues of accountability? Yeah, well, that is a great question. And we can use it all over the United States too. So we shouldn't say this is just in low-income countries, but certainly is very much frequent in low-income countries. And um, yeah, a couple of things. One of the critical parts of the blueprint was human resources. And it involved you know, how you hold people accountable, what corrective action is, all of this stuff. And it was a totally foreign concept to people. Um, however, what I think you asked for truisms, in systems, you can often find a group of people who actually are willing to hold each other accountable and be accountable. And we worked on them. We worked on them. We gave them things. We gave them more training. They got more access. It's just constant positive reinforcement. And it couldn't have been done by the technical people. This, I think, is a really hard lesson for all of us to learn. Tedros used to say, I'd get so frustrated, like, I cannot believe the medical director did not even order those things. We taught them. And he'd say, you know, this isn't your job. This is my job. And then in the country, 
they would come to terms with how to hold people accountable. And sometimes I wasn't that pleased with some of the things that happened, but you know, suddenly someone was gone and we'd wonder, hmm, I wonder what happened there. And I'm sure that's happened in Haiti too. I mean, they were moved to another place, but that accountability is political. It's not technical. So we gave them the technical human resource capacity. This is how you do it, but the actual forcing it to happen is a political problem. And I think you want your partner to take charge of the politics and that's tough. Um, and then I just, one other truism is um, even in the best of all worlds, which I would say working there was sort of the best of all worlds, it just, you go up and you go down, you know, like things work and then they don't work and you just got to stay at it. And eventually, you know, those that are accountable went out ultimately, but I think it takes a long time. Final comments, Adam? Uh, again, um, Betsy, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I, I think that, as, as I said in the beginning, we've been trying to have you come and speak to our, our community here for a couple of years now. Uh, last year, your presentation was postponed due to the onset okay. of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, and I'm glad we stayed at it and uh, uh, persevered and, and were able to arrange for you to join our group. Um, I'm also just going to do a quick plug. Uh, as many of you may know, we have the 2021 Global Health Symposium coming up um, in May. Uh, it started last weekend at UConn on stores, and on May 5th, we'll be hosting the Global Health Symposium here at Connecticut Children's, and then on May 7th, at UConn uh, Health Center in Farmington, but it'll all be focused on the theme of decolonizing global health and what we can do as global health um, uh, in, involved physicians and nurses and respiratory therapists and academic leaders and what we need to do as a university to really move forward um, from, from an old way of doing things to, to being a progressive decolonized uh, global health institute. Thank you. We all got to go you, to that. Sounds wonderful. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Bradley. Thank you, Adam. Uh, I want to wish everyone a, a kosher and joyous uh, Passover, also a happy Easter. And uh, for my physician colleagues, happy Doctor's Day. That Today is the day. Uh, thank you for all that, that you do. And some of you are joined here in this, uh, in this meeting. So again, uh, have a great week. And thank you, everyone, for attending. We, uh, Friday, we don't have a session. It's Good Friday. So ask the experts. Uh, we'll take place uh, two weeks from Friday because the week after we have the uh, equity, uh, the uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion seminar, which everyone should be joining if they can. So again, take care, be well. Uh, we'll see you in a bit. Bye-bye.